All right, well, good evening, everybody. Um, let's take our Bibles uh, this evening, if we could, and open them to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 6. I'll try to cover verses 6 through 9 tonight. Um, do you guys remember that we were studying the book of Zechariah? I had to look at my notes. I forgot what it was we were, we were studying. And we've actually made it all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 13, verse 5. And so we had our summer hiatus. Did you all enjoy that? I enjoyed mine. And we're going to pick it up here fall quarter with uh, verse 6, Zechariah 13. Um, I put a couple of slides together um, by way of introduction because you may not have been thinking about the book of Zechariah all summer. (laughs) But the book of Zechariah, the time period of the book is from 520 to 518 B.C., uh, according to the three verses in the book that give you dates, uh, which you see there on the screen. And the circumstances of the book related to the return from the captivity. You remember the nation of Israel had gone into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years, uh, 350 miles to the east of Jerusalem there in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years, and now the 70-year clock has ended, and they have returned from the captivity. And their primary task, or one of their primary tasks, was to rebuild the temple. This would be temple number two in the history of Judaism. Uh, The first temple, of course, built by Solomon, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar on the eve of the Babylonian captivity. Now they've returned from the captivity, and one of their jobs is to rebuild the temple. And the rebuilding of temple number two was something that was uh, slowed down. So Cyrus of Persia, who had conquered the Babylonians, issued a decree allowing that first group, because they came back in three waves, allowing that first group to come back and restore and rebuild the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed 70 years earlier. That happened in 538 B.C., and so in 536 B.C., the temple foundation was laid. And then, like with most things that God calls people to, there's always opposition. Have you noticed that? Anytime God calls you to do something, expect opposition from Satan and his minions. So the temple project was interrupted for about 15 years and the people just kind of forgot about it and they kind of moved into discouragement and discouragement moved into inaction. And so there's no temple in the nation for 15 years. And that, of course, is a problem because Bible prophecy indicated that the Messiah, when he comes is going to come to the temple. Um, You'll notice in the Gospels that a lot of Christ's ministry revolved around the temple. So Christ, two times in the Gospels, I believe, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end, went into the temple where the money changers were abusing the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Um, It was Satan that would take Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and challenge him to throw himself off to see if the angels will catch you. 
And of course it was Christ as a 12 year old that would sort of leave his mother and father. They would get worried about him. And they found him in the temple at the age of 12 confounding the religious leaders with his wisdom. So it's sort of hard for all of that activity to happen unless there's a temple. So rebuilding the temple in the time of Zechariah was very messianic. So about 520 to 518 B.C., God raised up two prophets. Um, You'll find them mentioned in the, the historical book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1. And then you'll see them mentioned a second time in Ezra 6, verse 14. And the whole ministry of these prophets was to encourage the returnees to rebuild temple number 2. And those two prophets are Haggai and his contemporary that we're studying named, uh, named two, named Zechariah. They have different approaches that they use. Haggai is more of an in-your-face guy. You know, get busy rebuilding it. Zechariah, his strategy as the Holy Spirit leads him is essentially to create a vision for God's purpose for the temple both with the Messiah and then later the Millennial Kingdom, and invite God's people to be involved in a wonderful task. You know, don't you want to be on the front side of a glorious project? But at any rate, that was their ministries, um, and they both ministered around 520 to 518 B.C. They were successful because uh, Darius came along, a Persian king, and he confirmed Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple. They started rebuilding the temple again. And finally, the temple was completed in 516 B.C. So this chart here, you know, sort of helps you fit Zechariah into the larger historical timeline. So Zechariah's purpose in his ministry and later in his book is basically to encourage the returnees to rebuild the temple. And so the message of the book of Zechariah is as follows. The Messiah's future restoration of Israel and millennial reign is depicted through various divine visions, responses, burdens, And these are given to induce hope and obedience among the beleaguered remnant. So the remnant uh, is tired, as we can get sometimes as God's people. That's why the book of Galatians says, don't don't become weary in well-doing. Have you ever been there where you're doing the right thing, but you're just tired? Um, that's sort of where God's people were as they were letting this temple project uh, lie in ruin. And so Zechariah's ministry is to encourage this group to rebuild the temple. And along the way, Zechariah gives a ton of messianic prophecies. Prophecies about the first coming of Christ and also prophecies about the second coming of Christ, some of which, Lord willing, we're going to look at tonight in our verses, uh, verses 6 through 9. So the book of Zechariah, as you might remember, has four parts to it. Part one is an introductory call to repentance. Repent and get busy doing what God says is important. Rebuilding temple number two. And then that section moves into eight night visions that Zechariah had in one night. And that must have been a heck of a night when you think about it. And so we've talked our way through these various eight night visions. All of them in some way or form relate to God's future purpose that he has in store for the temple. And those eight night visions sort of end with the crowning of a priest named Joshua. Now, in biblical times, you never crowned a priest. 
because priest and king were different offices. But those eight night visions end with the crowning of the high priest Joshua, which you might remember we understood as uh, a prophecy typifying or prefiguring Jesus and his reign on the earth one day as king priest from his millennial temple. So Zechariah's point is, you know, look at the future that God has for the temple. I mean, Jesus himself is going to reign over the earth from that location. And so why would you yield to discouragement and leave God's project unattended to? And that moved us into part three of the book, chapters seven and eight, where a question is given concerning fasting and mourning. And basically the question is, and it's given there in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, should we keep mourning and fasting? Because they were mourning and fasting the date when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed temple number 1. And should we keep mourning and fasting now that the 70 years are over and we're starting to rebuild temple 2? And the response that Zechariah gives really with four different answers that we've studied, but the bottom line to the whole thing is don't fast the and mourn the consequences of what happened with the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. You really should be concerned about your violations of God's covenant, your behavior in other words, which created the situation whereby temple number one would be destroyed. In other words, you're, you're mourning and fasting the wrong thing. You're, you're mourning and fasting the, the destruction of the temple. You're mourning and fasting what? When you should be mourning or fasting why it happened in the first place. And it happened in the first place because the nation had become disobedient to God. That's what you ought to be upset about. And if you mourn and fast that issue and you're focused on the why rather than the what, then the same thing won't happen to you again is sort of the point there of that section. And then that moves us into the final part of Zechariah's vision where he gives two burdens. The first burden is in chapters 9 through 11, and he gives a prediction here of all of the blessings that God wanted to do for the nation that are right now, as I speak, in a state of postponement because the nation rejected their own king at his first coming. So chapters 9 through 11 really constitute a large prophecy about how the nation of Israel, the first time Jesus came, would not embrace him as their king. Uh, They would reject him. And in fact, even the number of pieces of silver that they would betray him for, as we mentioned, is in that section. It's in chapter 11. And therefore, everything God wanted to do for the nation is now in postponement because the nation rejected their king in his first coming. So these are prophecies um, given about the rejection of Jesus by Israel 500 years in advance. And so it's astounding the stuff that Zechariah covers here. But fortunately, burden number one is followed by burden number two, um, which is in chapters 12 through 14, which now becomes the focus of the second coming. What Israel rejected in Christ's first coming, they will accept in the second coming because the second time the nation of Israel will get it right. Uh, They are actually going to accept their king, Jesus Christ. In the events of the great tribulation period, some of which, Lord willing, we're going to look at tonight, And once the nation of Israel accepts their king, 
and does the opposite of what they did with his first coming, rejecting him. Now they're going to accept him, yet future. Then all of the glorious millennial reign uh, prophecies are going to come into fruition. So that's sort of what's going on there in that second that second burden. So we've worked our way through chapter 12 um, in that second burden, which is where we find ourselves in our study. And that chapter basically deals with Israel's physical and spiritual restoration. And if you go back a chapter and you look at chapter 12, verse 10, notice what it says there. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping over a firstborn. So this is just a beautiful picture of the nation of Israel finally figuring out as the Holy Spirit is opening their eyes that the Antichrist is not their Messiah. In fact, the Antichrist will have revealed his true uh, identity as their enemy when the Antichrist desecrates the Jewish temple midway through the tribulation. And the nation of Israel, not just a Hebrew here or there, but the whole nation, uh, we'll come to a realization that, oh my goodness, Jesus was the Messiah. We rejected him 2,000 years ago. In fact, we're the ones that pierced him. We're the ones that rushed him through the judicial system to get him declared guilty, to hand him over to Rome so he could be killed. And we had it completely wrong. We're now willing to accept Jesus as our Messiah, and the whole nation begins to repent and so it's a phenomenal picture in the second burden of Israel finally getting it right. Uh, Israel is the nation that has a tendency to get things right the second time. And you see that as the nation is interacting with Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers, book of Genesis, threw him into a pit, rejected him when he was 17, uh, rejected his uh, vision that he had, the dream that he had, that he would be in a place of authority one day. When Joseph said, I saw the sun and the moon and the 12 stars bowing down to me, the brothers didn't like that very much, and so they threw him into a pit, left him for dead. But when famine hit the land of Canaan, They sojourned from Canaan to Egypt to find grain in the midst of famine. And so they accepted Joseph as the savior in that sense of the nation the second time. They got it right the second time. They didn't get it right the first time. They got it right the second time. Um, You see this idea of Israel getting it right the second time through the life of Moses. Um, Moses announced to the nation about the age of 40 in Egypt that he was their redeemer. And they rejected him. They said, you're not going to kill us, are you? Like you did the Egyptian the other day. And Moses got scared and he fled into Midian for 40 years. But he came back from Midian after that 40-year time period at the age of 80. And it's at that point the nation embraced Moses as their redeemer. So you'll notice once again the nation of Israel did not get it right the first time. They got it right the second time. So the same pattern is happening here. They got it wrong the first time with Jesus And that's what the prophecies of Zechariah in the first burden are exposing, chapters 9 through 11. And I'm very happy the book doesn't end with chapter 11, because there's a second burden, chapters 12 through 14, where they're going to get it right. 
and it's actually going to take the events of the tribulation period itself and the nation's betrayal by the Antichrist to bring about this reality. So that's what's happening in chapter 12, and that's the conversion that's described there in chapter 12, verse 10. So chapter 12 is followed by chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, where there is a fountain opened up, chapter 13, verse 1. This is the nation of Israel now in belief, and a fountain opens up. Is it a physical fountain or a spiritual fountain? I think the answer is yes. I think it's both. (laughs) But not the least of which is a spiritual fountain because that's how the movement of the Holy Spirit is described. When the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, it's analogized in the Bible to being sprinkled with water. The prophet Ezekiel predicted Israel's conversion through that metaphor of water. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all of your idols. So I think that's the significance of the fountain opening up there. In chapter 13, verse 1, it's speaking of Israel's conversion. And once this happens, God is going to take idolatry. You know, idolatry being this idea that God's people worship the created thing instead of the creator. According to Zechariah 13, verse 2, God, from that point on, will forever remove idolatry from the nation of Israel. And it was idolatry that got them into trouble because God at Mount Sinai gave them the Ten Commandments, right? And what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no graven images, Along with that, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And boy, did the nation of Israel get that one wrong. Um, The next 800 years, the nation is filled with idolatry. And so God, as part of the covenant, they were supposed to keep their end of it. Mosaic covenant now. No idols. When they disobeyed God, God, God brought upon the nation curses. And the height of the curses, it says in Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 50, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation with a divine attitude who will show no respect for the old or the young. So at the height of Israel's disobedience, according to the Mosaic Covenant, that God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai, he would bring a foreign nation against them and evict them from their own land. And that has to do with idolatry in the land. That's why Israel went into the 70-year captivity. But once the fountain is opened up, the day in history will come where idolatry will be a total thing of the past. And Israel will never be an idolatrous nation again. And then also in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, God says, I'm going to remove false prophets out of the land. Because it was the false prophets telling everybody, hey, everything's great. We're never going to go into captivity. Behave however you want. And God says, when Israel is restored in the kingdom age, every single false prophet will be taken out of the land of Israel. And you see that described in verses 2 through 5. So, that's my introduction. That's a 25-minute introduction, isn't it? So I kind of felt like we needed to do that because we hadn't been studying this all summer. Um, did you guys find that helpful at all? Okay. Let's um, let's start the study tonight. <laughs> And we're going to end right at 8 o'clock, so don't don't worry. I, I take numbers literally, even the clock on the wall. 
Um, now what you have is a um, description by Zechariah of the total, top to bottom, uh, comprehensive deliverance of Israel. So what got Israel into hot water? Verse 6 and verse 7. What is going to get them out of hot water? Verse 8 and verse 9. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, Israel will be restored according to Zechariah's prophecies here. But it's not going to be easy. Israel, before she is restored, is in for a very, very bumpy ride. You know, it's like the pilot saying, you know, fasten your seatbelts, you're about to encounter turbulence. Uh, what is described in these verses is just mind-blowing turbulence that is yet future for the nation of Israel. I mean, these are the links that God has to go to to spiritually awaken his um, elect nation. So what got them into hot water is they struck their shepherd. And so you'll notice verse 6, Zechariah 13. It says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? I believe that's a prophecy about the wounding Jesus would receive at the hands of the Jewish people in both his chest and in his back. And he was beaten within an inch of his life with 40 lashes minus one. And you say, well, wait a minute, wasn't it the Romans that did that? Yes, it was the Romans that did that. But it was the leadership of first century Israel that made a determination ahead of time before even looking at the evidence. In fact, they twisted the evidence to turn Jesus into a blasphemer. So one of the most fascinating studies you could ever do, and I've, I've been very interested in this for a long time as, a, as an attorney myself, is the trials of Christ. Christ had six legal trials in the Gospels. Uh, three of them religious at the hands of the Jews, three of them civil at the hands of the Romans. And when you study what they did to make a determination that this man is guilty, uh, they basically violated all their legal rules of evidence um, in one of the greatest miscarriages of justice that's ever been done to a person. And that's what they did to Jesus. The leadership of Israel did not like Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by his popularity. And so they just made a determination that we've got to kill this guy. The Romans had taken away from the Jews in the first century the right to execute their own criminals. That's why Jesus was not stoned to death, but he was crucified, which is a Roman method of execution. And they said, you know, we're not going to get this guy dead. We're not going to kill him until... We make a determination that he's guilty so we can hand him over to Rome to get the job done. And that's basically what happened. Uh, you can read all about it in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the different trials of Christ and the miscarriage of justice that Jesus suffered. And the end result was many wounds that Jesus himself received including wounds on his chest and on his back, uh, being beaten within an inch of his life with the cat of nine tails. And um, it's one of those things that's horrific to, to study, but at the same time, God took lemons and turned them into lemonade because God the Father used that transaction to pay my sin debt and your sin debt and the sin debt of the whole world. And so it was a miscarriage of justice on one end of the stick, but on the other end of the stick, it was exactly what God the Father wanted.
because that paid the sin debt of the world. And what was very troubling, I don't know if you've ever been stabbed in the back by a friend. I think we've all kind of gone through that in different life experiences. I mean, be, being injured is one thing. It's a totally different thing when your friends are you know, whispering behind your back. And, you know, we say to the Lord, well, Lord, you just don't understand. I'm very hurt because I got betrayed by a friend. And the Lord Jesus says, oh, I know all about that. I know all about that. And in fact, being betrayed by a friend is mentioned also in verse 6. One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will, now this is 500 years before Jesus showed up, keep in mind. Then he will say those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. My friends did this to me. Of course, Jesus was betrayed by a man named Judas. Judas was a friend of Christ. I mean, we have a tendency to villainize Judas, probably rightfully so, but we forget the fact that Jesus called Judas friend right to the very end. Um, it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, And Jesus said to him, Judas, friend, do what you have come. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And you know the rest of that passage, how he was betrayed uh, with a kiss, actually, the kiss of a friend. And so that's what it means here when it says, I'm going to be wounded by my friends. The other set of friends that Jesus had was the nation of Israel. That was his nation. John chapter 1, verse 11 of Jesus, it says, He came to his own. Who would his own be? Israel, the nation. He came to his own, and those who were, who were his own did not receive him. So he was betrayed by his own people. He was betrayed by his own nation. Um, he was wounded on chest and back at the hands of the Romans because of what one of his best friends, Judas, did to him. And so these are all descriptions of what, what, what exactly has put national Israel under such blindness today and divine discipline. Uh, this, this is what they did. Um, this is why the nation of Israel today, although she has a future, as we'll see, is currently nationally under the discipline of God. Now, I'm basically a Zionist, meaning I'm an Israel lover. Uh, I think that as Christians, we should help Israel you know, whenever and however we can. I'm very pro-Israel in how I look at the world. I don't vote for people into political office that are anti-Israel, for example. But at the same time, despite the fact that we as evangelical Christians are Israel lovers, it doesn't change the fact that Israel today is under blindness and discipline because of what they did to Jesus 2,000 years ago. I'm not saying that an individual Jew can't get saved today. Many, many Jews do get saved today. I'm talking about the state of the nation, the leadership of the nation is in a state of blindness because they struck their shepherd uh, 2,000 years ago. They are under the curses currently of the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And you continue on and you go down to verse um, 7. And it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. And you'll notice here that Yahweh claims close association with the shepherd that was struck. And I think the reason for that is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all separate personages. You know, the Father always retains his fatherness. The Son always retains His Sonness. The Holy Spirit always retains His Holy Spiritness. 
they all re- retain their specific personages, personalities, and uniqueness, but they all share in the essence of deity. And that's a mystery that the finite mind, I don't think, could ever wrap itself around. It's something you'll spend the whole your whole Christian life um, adoring, really. But it's a struggle to understand from the human perspective. And so even though the Son and the Father are separate personages, they both share equally in the essence of deity. Uh, in fact, Jesus in John 10 and verse 31 said something that blew the minds of the Jewish leadership at the time. He says, I and the Father are one. That actually becomes one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. They thought he was a blasphemer because you, a mere man, claim to be claim to be God. But it was true. I and the Father are one according to the words of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Yahweh, verse 7, is sort of featured here in close relationship, close association with the shepherd. It goes on here and it talks about how the shepherd is going to be struck. Also in verse 7, it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is why Satan himself targeted Jesus, because if he can take out Jesus, the shepherd, he can take out the sheep or Israel. Um, Jesus in Gethsemane, I think it was, on the eve of his earthly death in Matthew 26, verse 31, he said of the disciples, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, And then he quotes the passage we're looking at here in the Garden of Gethsemane. For it is written, quote, I will strike down the shepherd and the flock shall be scattered. So they struck their own shepherd and the sheep consequently, you know, were were scattered. The scattering of the sheep, and once you start to understand the scattering of the sheep because of what they did to him, then you understand why Israel needs to be so desperately rescued. The scattering of the sheep is described right there in verse verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep may be scattered. And look at the very end of verse 7. I will turn my hand against the little ones. What does that mean? I will turn my hand against the little ones. Well, The disciples were scattered as a result of this. And the nation of Israel was scattered. They rejected their own king and God as part of the Mosaic Covenant. Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 and 50 says, When you are disobedient, I will bring a nation from afar against you. In this particular case, it took the form of Rome. In A.D. 70, just uh, under four decades after the crucifixion of Jesus, God brought discipline against the nation of Israel, as God said he would in the Mosaic Covenant. All the way back in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, it predicts this. It says, moreover, the Lord will scatter you, that's Israel, among all the peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And it goes on and it says, And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations, plural, the scattering, you, Israel, will find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, But the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and despair of soul. And that is exactly what Israel has experienced over the last 2,000 years because of Israel's rejection of her own king. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 27 predicted this scattering. It says the Lord will scatter you among the peoples 
and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. This is not talking anything related to the Babylonian captivity because Zechariah wrote after the Babylonian captivity. In the Babylonian captivity, the nation went into captivity in one geographical area, Babylon. That's not what these prophecies predict. They predict something far more severe where the nation would be scattered into all the nations. The term that is used to describe this reality that's happened for Israel over the last 2,000 years is the word diaspora, which is a Greek word meaning dispersion. God said 500 years in advance, you will strike your own king, you will strike your own shepherd, and I will send you into worldwide dispersion. And uh, that's exactly what has happened for 2,000 years in the diaspora. It, it isn't only until recent times, modern times, in our lifetime, that gradually the nation of Israel has been slowly but surely recycled back into her own homeland. And so it's very interesting that Zechariah sees these things um, 500 years before Jesus even shows up. And he's explaining here why Israel is in this helpless state and why God needs to rescue her. She's going to reject her own shepherd. And the consequence of that is the sheep are going to be scattered. So if all of that is true, Israel needs a lot of help. And she's going to get it according to verses 8 and 9. And it's not going to be easy. Because here in verses 8 and 9 is where you get the numerical fraction. And it's the only time in the Bible that I know of that does this. It tells you exactly how many within the nation, fraction-wise, are going to perish. So God can restore a remnant. And you see that described in verses 8 and 9. It says, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And then verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And now we have a description at the end of verse 9 of their conversion. The conversion not of the whole nation, but a conversion of the remnant, the third. They, that's the third, will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord uh, is my God. So what you're seeing in the Bible, you know, it's it's really easy for us to say, oh, you know, isn't it great? Israel's going to be restored in the end times. We don't, we don't really understand the gravity of, and the extent that God has to take to bring the nation to restoration. I mean, God God literally is moving heaven and earth and creating all kinds of circumstances that are going to bring Israel to saving, saving faith. So we can celebrate the passages dealing with the restoration of Israel. What we get our eyes off very quickly is the severity of all of this. I mean, this is going to be a very, very bumpy ride. You know, buckle your seatbelts. You're about to encounter turbulence. This is very, very severe turbulence here because what God is saying is two-thirds of the nation is going to be wiped out. There's other passages that talk about this kind of thing. They just, they just don't give the fraction. But it says, for example, in Ezekiel 20, verse 34, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you have scattered. Verse 35, there I will enter judgment with you face to face. Ezekiel 28:38, I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. So yeah, God is going to restore the nation, but he's also going to purge out the rebels. 
And it's not until you study Zechariah 13, the last two verses of the chapter, that you actually get a fraction. How many rebels are we talking about? We're talking about two-thirds of the nation. Two-thirds of the nation is going to be wiped out. That's what it's going to take for God to bring this remnant, believing remnant, to faith. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 of the tribulation period says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's, what? Distress. This is a time of distress. Now we know who Jacob is because Jacob's name in the book of Genesis was changed to Israel in chapter 32 and chapter 35. So the God's judgment or future for the nation is to bring them into a time of unparalleled distress. But the end of the verse, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, He, that's Jacob, will be saved from it. Now, we love the parts where it says Jacob is going to be saved in the end times. We're not so big on the distress part. But the distress part is very, very big because that's the tool that God uses to bring Israel to faith. And the distress, when you put in the prophecies that we're reading here in Zechariah, is going to be of such a severe nature that it's going to cause two-thirds of the nation to perish. I mean, think about that, two-thirds. Adolf Hitler in the Holocaust, killed one-third of the Jews. And today the Jewish slogan, rightfully so, is never again. They say we're never going to let that happen again. And then here we are showing up with our Bibles, pointing to the book of Zechariah, saying not only is it going to happen again, it's going to be worse. Hitler killed a third, the Antichrist is going to kill two-thirds. Now, do you think you're going to get invited to speak at a lot of Jewish synagogues talking like that? But that's what the prophecies say. God means what he says and says what he means. I mean, this is severe stuff. This is not um, dessert and fun time. Yay, Israel's going to be restored. It's look at what God is doing to bring Israel to this point of restoration. By the way, if you're honest with yourself, um, he did a lot of things like this in your life. God, before you were saved, made your life totally miserable. Can I get an amen on that? And he kept uh, kicking away all of the things that we have here on the earth that we think we can trust in. Oh, you're going to trust in your career? I'll tank the career. Oh, you think you're going to trust in money? I'll empty the bank account. Oh, you think you can trust in health? I'll make you unhealthy. And God does all of these kinds of things because he's trying to get us to see that our Savior is not a bank account. It's not a career. It's not money. It's not health. But it's Jesus. And the problem is getting us to the point where we can recognize that. And so he kicks these props artificial props out from under us. So you see the pattern. It's just he has to do it in a major, major way for Israel, you know, to bring this remnant to um, to saving faith. So comprehensive deliverance, shepherds struck, sheep scattered, two-thirds of the nation in the tribulation will perish, but of course, there's good news because just read to the end of the chapter. But the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, I will answer them, I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my, is my God. So bringing this third to faith is describing the refiner's fire. It's analogized to the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire, the only thing it can do is purify a piece of metal. 
It has no ability to destroy the metal. So our trials that we are facing today as Christians are analogized to being tested by fire in the same way. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, that's the trials of life, even now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and the honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. The refiner's fire imagery is used in the book of Revelation as Jesus is speaking to the church at um, Laodicea. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. So this refiner's fire imagery is, is very, very common, Old Testament and New Testament. And the end result is towards the end of verse 9, they will call on my name and I will answer them. When is the Jewish nation going to call on the name of Jesus, this one-third? It's at the end of the tribulation. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That's all first coming stuff. But verse 39, he shifts to the second coming. For I say from now on, you will not see my face until you, that's Israel, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll notice that's in caps. End of verse 39 there. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. Which says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's a messianic psalm. And what it says, Jesus is saying here, is I'm not coming back for this nation until this nation nationally acknowledges my rightful place as king. Something that they rejected in the first coming. So the nation that always gets it right the second time is going to get it right. It's a bumpy ride, but a third will acknowledge Jesus and he will return and rescue them from the beast. That, by the way, is where you can put Joel 2.32. It says it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even from among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So this calling on the Lord, by the way, that's where you put Romans 10, 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says the exact same thing. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Most people, unfortunately, use that in their gospel presentation. But contextually, it has nothing to do with a gospel presentation. Because the whole focus of Romans 10, verse 13, is Israel, which is described in Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9, Israel in the past elected. Romans 10, Israel in the present rejected. Romans 11, Israel in the future accepted. This is an Israel section. And that's where you put Romans 10, verse 13. You don't put it in your gospel presentation to the unsaved. You put it into what Israel must say. Psalm 118, verse 26 a messianic psalm to be rescued from the wrath of the Antichrist 
at the end of the tribulation period. This third is going to call on Jesus. They will nationally cite Psalm 118, verse 26, and that's what will lead to their deliverance. And so this results in the conversion now of the nation, the fulfillment of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is where you put Romans 11, 25 and 26, where Paul says in Romans 11:26, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, when he says all, he doesn't mean every Jew. I wish it did mean that. Because if he meant that, he would be contradicting Zechariah. When he says, and so all Israel will be saved, the all is the believing remnant, the one-third, that will acknowledge the Messiah at the end of the tribulation period. And these will be survivors on the earth who are mortals. At that point, they will enter at the end of the tribulation period into the kingdom. The kingdom will only begin with believers, and it will be filled with Jewish believers, and they consequently will repopulate the earth. Um, This is important because a lot of people think, well, all Israel will be saved. God is going to save every Jew. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, I wish it did say that, but it doesn't say that. There is a believing remnant within Israel that God will save. John the Baptist spoke this 2,000 years ago. He says to the, to the Israelis of his day, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. What impresses God is not someone that is a national descendant of Israel. What really impresses God is a descendant of Israel that believes, the third. Because that's the group that God is going to fulfill his kingdom promises in and through. He's not going to do it through all Jews. He's going to do it through the believing Jews. This is why Paul in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, would say things like, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6 said, not all Israel are descended from Israel. I mean, you want to be an Israeli after God's heart, then don't just be an Israeli. Be a believing Israeli. Now you've won the heart of God. And that's why when the Lord spoke to Smyrna and Philadelphia in Revelation 2, verse 9, and Revelation 3, verse 9, He talked about how the church was being persecuted by those who say they are Jews but are not. A synagogue of Satan. He said the same thing in Revelation 3 verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. What is he talking about here with this synagogue of Satan? Those who say they are Jews and not. What he's saying is the people that are persecuting you are ethnic Jews in unbelief. They're not what Galatians 6 verse 16 calls the Israel of God. God is never impressed by people because of their national origin. Any more than I think God loves me more than others because I'm an American. I mean, God doesn't care if I'm an American. What he cares about is if I'm an American that believes in Jesus. And it's the same pattern with his elect nation. He doesn't care if they're Jews. What he cares about is the Jews in faith. And because they are God's elect nation, there's just a ton of them, a third, which is a big number, 
that's going to get saved in the tribulation period. And that's the group that God is going to fulfill his promises through. J. Vernon McGee, this is my last quote here. J. Vernon McGee says, The third shall be left therein refers to the same remnant that shall ask, What are these wounds in thine hands? Verse 6. They will have come through the horror of the great tribulation period in which two-thirds of their people have perished. So this um, really becomes one of the most uh, staggering prophecies in the Bible, not just speaking of Israel's deliverance, but the the reason they need deliverance. I mean, they desperately need deliverance because they struck their shepherd and they were scattered. And the pathway to deliverance is not going to be an easy one. It's going to involve two-thirds of the nation being wiped out. But by the time all the, sm- the smoke settles, the dust settles, the smoke clears, what you have at the end of chapter 13 is an absolutely beautiful picture of every living Jew on planet Earth in faith calling on Jesus to rescue them, which he does at the end of the tribulation period And then he says, enter the kingdom in your mortal bodies, repopulate the earth, and it's through that believing group that I'm going to fulfill every single promise that I ever made to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you might be saying, well, can you tell us what that kingdom is going to be like? And I'm glad you asked that because that's what chapter 14 is about. And so I would encourage you before next week to read through the last chapter, 14, uh, Zechariah 14, and see this, this future that God has. All right. Well, I didn't do too bad tonight. It's only 8.02, two minutes over. So if you got to take off, collect your kids, um, now's a good time for you to do that. And if anybody wants to stick around for Q&A, we can do that also.